Take your Bibles. I joked online this week that I was uh, preaching on this obscure, hard-to-understand verse, uh, John 3.16. Uh, when nobody knows, you know, it's not, you know, not going to click with anybody. Um, a lot of people didn't get the joke. They were like, oh, here's some help you can have. And even uh, Rick Warren of Saddleback Church in California offered to let me have his sermon notes on it. And I was very, very thankful, but his little secretary guy couldn't find them, so I didn't get them anyway. But uh, it wasn't necessary, is, is, was, was the point, but that's all right. I'll take whatever help I can get. Uh, and it's always great to hear some other perspectives. Today, we are beginning a, a four-and-a-half-month theme of On Mission with God. Uh, if you haven't figured out, that's where my heart is. That's what I want our church to be doing. I want our church to be living out Acts 1-8. We need to be going to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And in case you haven't heard it before, and I'm sure you have, Jerusalem is our Nixon, or I should say Nixon is our Jerusalem. That's our city, our town, our immediate area that we're supposed to be reaching out to. The next one would be Judea. Well, for us, it's not really one-to-one, but Judea would be Texas for us. We want to do things specific to Texas. And how do we reach out to, to other Texans? Samaria would be our country, the U.S. What are we going to do to reach out to parts? And we can't reach everywhere, obviously. But pick one, and then we do it. And then the ends of the earth, as you may have seen on the slide this morning, or if you go back here and look at the map uh, that's on the bulletin board in the fellowship hall, you'll see some ends of the earth that we're praying about. It, we've been praying about where God's going to send us to, to what unengaged people group. And there are five options that I have felt narrowed down to. They may change, but probably not. Five different groups uh, across the world, uh, literally. Uh, the Fala of Spain. The uh, British of uh, the British Virgin Islands. The Aymara group in uh, northern Argentina. Um, the... Uh, Willisian group on an island called Willis and Futuna near Fiji in the South Pacific, and then the Aina, uh, the Aina, let me say right, Ainu, what was it David? Ainus, thank you, of Japan, of northern Japan. So we're talking about the ends of the earth here, and that's part of it. See, we weren't told as a church to pick one and go there. We were told to hit Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So that's what we're going to do. And I shared with the deacons this morning about some, uh, some things, uh, particularly a person, a church planter that's on my heart, who is going to be uh, moving in September to start a new church. Uh, don't need all the details yet, but in North America and what we can do to help him. So we're doing this. We're, we're going to see where God takes us. But our theme then for the next four and a half months, while we uh, pray about this church planter that we're going to uh, possibly get behind, what God's going to have us do in Texas, uh, where he's going to send us across the world, what are we going to do here in Nixon? You know, the, the fourth Sunday 
uh, to, to, for God's storehouse that we're doing next week. Um, remember, we're, we're, this month we're collecting pinto beans that you're going to bring, and we're going to have a time during the service to bring them up to the altar because it's not about... It's not just about feeding people, but it's about the opportunity to share the gospel because we were there when people needed us. Those things, that is just a small part of what we're going to be doing in Nixon. So if we're on mission with God, and as we go through this, this, this theme, what is he going to tell us to do? What else is he going to tell us to do? Because y'all, we're not done. We're not done once we plant a church in and wherever. We're not done once we plant a church in Texas. We're not done once we reach out to one of these groups that we're praying about. Then it's, okay God, what's next? Where are you sending us now? Because God never calls us to be off mission. We're to always be on mission. And this, this theme uh, of, for the next four and a half months will be split up into about four different series. This first series is knowing what God wants. And we're going to spend all of uh, the rest of January and all of February on knowing what God, God wants. Specifically, how can we know God's will? And what happens when we do know God's will? And we're going to look at Paul, and we're going to look at Abraham, and we're going to look at the, the calls of some people and, and the problems that they had. And all these things, we're going to understand what it is to be called of God. But this morning... We're going to look at John 3, 16 through 18. Because the number one thing God calls us to be is saved. That's the number one thing. We're not going to understand anything until we get that one, that one down. So this week, we want to know what God wants. And what God wants is your salvation. So turn to John 3, 16 through 18. And uh, let's look at that. Now, the question is, when any time we talk about what God wants is, how can we know God's will? And that is a great, great question. Forget about it. Right now, today, we're not worried about how we can know God's will. I don't want you thinking about how we can know which country we're going to reach out to, which unengaged people group we're going to embrace and engage. I don't want you thinking about whether we're going to help this guy plant a church. I don't want you thinking about what we're going to do in Texas or what we're going to do in Nixon. Because right now, we need to get some other things straight. The number one thing God wants, the number one thing that God wills, is for you to be saved. Then we can ask about the other things. Now, I understand that many of you here this morning are saved. This verse does not get old just because you're an older Christian. And by older, I mean you've been a Christian for a while, not physical age. This verse speaks to us daily and reminds us daily of what Jesus did for us. That should never get old for a Christian. It should never get old to hear the gospel message and to see it change lives. As a Christian, we should be excited anytime we get to hear the gospel proclaimed. So we sit and we understand some things, but we can always understand more. Because I guarantee you, you'll learn something this morning. So what does it mean to be saved? That's a great question. Let's look at 3, 16 through 18. For God loved the world in this way. 
He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world that he might condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned, because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. Now, in your Bible, these verses are probably red. R-E-D, red, the color, not R-E-A-D, like you read them. Hopefully you've read them, but uh, they're probably the color red. Let's not get hung up on that. Remember that the original Bible, the original Greek, there were no red letters, okay? Uh, it's actually very possible that Jesus didn't say this. This is John beginning, just because, uh, beginning to give a commentary and teach from what Jesus said. Doesn't matter, remember, all Scripture is God-breathed. So it's all Jesus' words from in the beginning to amen. So we don't have to worry about whether it's red or not. Some of your Bibles, it may not be red. But what we do see, what we do have here, are verses of power. Now, as if all of Scripture isn't powerful, I understand that all Scripture is. But there's something about John 3.16. Let's talk for a minute about one of the most spiritual things you can discuss at church, football. A fellow by the name of Tim Tebow. Now, I honestly did not plan the Tim Tebow thing when I was planning this message. This message is older than last week, okay? Uh, just so you know. But it, just God working. Last week against the Steelers, we're not going to talk about how he did yesterday against the Patriots, okay? That game never happened, as far as I'm concerned. Last week against the Steelers, Tim Tebow threw for 316 yards. Okay, so he threw for a 31.6 yard average. The overtime drew a 31.6 television rating. And Pittsburgh's time of possession was 31 minutes and 6 seconds. Yes, I mean, we can say that's all coincidence, and maybe it is. I've heard people say that coincidences are just small miracles in which God wishes to remain anonymous. Okay? Maybe, maybe that's what it was. I'm not going to over-spiritualize it too much. I will say, though, that God could have definitely worked it out to present a situation where somebody like Tim Tebow, who has no qualms about presenting his faith wherever he is, got the opportunity to do it in a grander way, a, a, a more um, broadcast way than he normally would. He always, we used to call it praying, but now we call it Tebowing. He always Tebows when he does something well or, or even when he doesn't. He always gives thanks to the Lord in a press conference. But maybe God was doing something in this game, knowing what it was going to present, knowing what the hype would be leading into the Patriots this week. And maybe God did something. I don't know. God didn't talk to me about it. Didn't ask my opinion or my permission. So I'm going to leave it at that. But what I am going to tell you is that Monday, after the football game that John 3.16 was the number one search on Google, on the internet. Number one. 
Do you know how many Google searches there are? And for John 3.16 to be number one? That's Monday following the game. That, that's not during the game, not even right after the game. That's a day at, or two days after. Did they play on Saturday last week or Sunday? I can't remember. I think it was Saturday. So two days after, it's still number one. Well, what does that mean, Michael? Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, BGEA, pays money so that when anybody searches for John 3.16, their website, peacewithgod.net, is at the top. So that the first thing they get, you type in John 3.16, you get your, your page, and the first thing you can click on is peacewithgod.net, which presents the plan of salvation. Monday, they got 8,000 hits on that website. Now that's assuming, I mean, that, that's not assuming that everybody went to that website. We assume they went to a whole bunch of others, but that one got 8,000. They confirmed 150 salvations just from that one football game. Now, that is not the power of Tim Tebow. That's not the power of football. That's not the power of the internet. That's the power of God's Word. John 3.16. It's probably the first verse every kid in church learns. It's the verse that we all quote. We all quote it probably in King James, because that's how we learned it, most of us. But we know that verse. But I'm afraid we forget the power of the verse because we're so familiar with it. We see it in football games. You've got the guy with the sign sitting behind the goal stands. Seems like every game there's one person with John 3.16. And I'm sure it worked for a while for him. I'm sure that it caused people to look it up. But then we have a guy who, who breaks all the football rules. And I don't mean the rules of football. I mean the rules of being a football player who presents John 3.16 and people really start to look and they see the power of that scripture. You really can't take John 3.16 without 17 and 18. It, 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 you've got to get the whole picture to understand it, and that's what we're going to look at today. And we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the power of this scripture, what it means to the lost, what it means to us as the saved, and let us rejoice in the fact that once again we see the love of God and His salvation. We're going to see three things today. First, we're going to see what God did in 3.16. We're going to see why God did it in 3.17. And we're going to see what God didn't do in verse 18. Those are the three things we're looking at this morning. What God did, why He did it, and what He didn't do. Let's look at John 3.16 uh, first. We all know this one. Now, the translation I'm going to have up here is a little different, the translation I had earlier. We know, for God so loved the world that he gave. We, uh, the, the one I have says, for God loved the world in this way. We'll get to that in a minute. Let's look at the for God, though. For God. It begins with God. If you think you had something to do with your salvation you're wrong. If you think you're good enough to be saved, you're wrong. If you think that you can somehow earn your salvation, you're wrong. 
Salvation began with God. Salvation began with God before time began. We don't understand how infinity of time works, but it has always been God's plan to save the ones who would believe. So it begins with God. The first thing God did, the first thing we see here that God did is that he chose. Don't think of it as a point in time that he chose because there is no point in time with God. But God chose to do something. Now, what did God choose to do? Well, for God loved. There are many that would say that God is an evil, mean, vindictive, just bad God. As a matter of fact, there were, there were discussions of that a couple of hundred years after Jesus. They, there were people who said, we need to get rid of the Old Testament because the God of the Old Testament is, is mean. The God of the New Testament would love people. The God of the New Testament is not different from the God of the Old. Loving, a loving God is not a New Testament concept. Think of all the verses that come to mind when you hear from the Old Testament when you hear the word loving kindness. The Old Testament is full of it. That word is chesed in the Hebrew. That is the main attribute that is attributed to God throughout the Old Testament. This is not a New, a New Testament concept. This was not new to the people of the New Testament. And it should not be new to us that God loves. Is God just? Yes. Will God punish sin? Yes. Will God allow people to go to hell? Yes. Is God mean because of that? Well, only if parents are mean when they punish their children, or only if parents are mean when they allow their children to suffer the consequences of their decisions. We generally don't call parents mean. Actually, we're more inclined to call parents mean when they don't punish or when they don't allow children to suffer the consequences because nothing is learned, nothing is gained. So God is a loving God. The second thing that we see that God did is that he loved. What did he love? Well, the next part of the verse says, For God loved the world. This is the only place in John where God the Father is said to love the world. John's a pretty big book. There's a lot of theology there. In no other place does he say, does John say that God loves the world. Now, this is, this is a new concept for the New Testament. The idea that God loves everybody, not just Israel and not just a specific group. God's love is for everyone. It's not to say that God didn't love everyone in the Old Testament. It, that's, what I'm saying is the Jews thought that he only loved them. What the Jews never understood is that they were to be a missionary society. They got the idea over the years that, God, that we're special. The Jews are special. We hunker down and everybody else is bad, so we're going to keep God to ourselves. And if they want to come over here and join us, well, that's great. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like churches sometimes? If they want to come in our doors, they know where we are. No, y'all. Just like the church, the Jews were a missionary society. 
They were supposed to go out and spread God's love, not condemn from inside and say, well, if you want it, you come in here and get it. So this, to the people, was a new concept, but this was not a new concept to God. This word world here is God's opposition. The word is cosmos in the Greek, and it's used in a lot of places in the New Testament to mean the world, the dirt and the plants and the trees and the people and the rocks and every the water and the air and everything in it. In John, though, almost every time he uses the word cosmos, it's used about people that are hostile to God, who are depraved, who are ruined, who are in opposition to God. So what John is saying here is not that God loves the world as, as Greenpeace would like it to be or as you know the Sierra Club or something like that. God loves the dirt and the trees. But God loves the people. And not just the good people, not, oh, let me put that in, good people, not just a particular group, but the opposition, the ruined, the depraved. Those are the ones God loves. Little aside here, it's not in the notes. Shouldn't that be the ones we love as well? Shouldn't those be the ones that we're going after? God loves everyone. And if you have a different idea, your idea is wrong. Because God loves us all. God loved the world in this way. The word is actually thus. We say, King James said, for God so loved the world. The translation would actually be, for God thus loved the world. And that brings in, it makes some people question, you know, what, what's meant by it? And, that, and that's a good question. We need to understand what the scriptures say. So the question that is asked because of this, did God love us in this manner? Or did God love us so much that? Is John merely describing how God loved us? Or is he telling us how much God loved us? Well, I will say that the answer is yes. With a caveat. Yes, it is how, in what way God loved us. But the wording, the way that John put it, it is clear that it's talking about how much God loves us. Let me just ask you, if somebody says, you know, this is how much I love my wife. I sat through Miss America pageant last night. Maybe that was no burden to me. Uh, by then, who cared about the Broncos anyway? Um, but we understand when you say, let me tell you how much I love my wife, or in what way I love my wife, I watched Miss America pageant. Now, do we think you're just describing something? It just, you know, it's not a big deal. This is just how I do it. Or are you telling us you love your wife so much? How much? I watched the Miss America pageant. You hear the difference? Well, that's what we have in John 3:16. Yes, God loved the world in this way. But when we get to the this way, it's not, you know, he let us play our video games 30 extra minutes. It's not he gave us a, a little bonus in our check. Oh, thanks God, appreciate it. And we go on. We're talking about God loved us this way. He gave his son. 
And that's the next one. God love us, loves us in this way, thus he gave. See, in the past, God gave the law. The law made us aware of our sin. Now, God has given us his son, which takes away our sin. Do we see the difference? God has always been a giving God. Now God has provided a clear way to take away our sin. No longer does the law just explain to us why we're bad and we turn to God. But God says, here, let me help you understand what I'm going to do for you. You are going to have a way out of sin. See, this is God's volitional choice, and I understand that's redundant, but I want you to get it. God did not have to do this. This is God's free gift. This is God sacrificing. Who would ever say that, oh, you only gave me your son? Well, that's not enough. But don't we? God, my life stinks. You only gave me your son? Why can't you give me money? God, my life stinks. You only gave me your son? Why can't you take my pain? We do it all the time. And God says, I gave you the best thing I could ever give you. And we often spurn that. God so loved the world. God loved the world in this way. He gave his only son. Third thing God did is he gave. God chose he loved and he gave. But we're not done with the verse. He gave his one and only son, his unique, this one-time only gift. Nothing like him out there. There will never be a commercial where we say, Jesus too, new and improved. No, there will never be another way that God can love you. There will never be a better way that God can love you and show you how he loves you. The most precious gift anyone could give his son. And he loves us, and he gave his son so that everyone, that's you, and you, and you, and me, and them over there, and the people in that country, and everyone. There is nobody. There's no restriction on who can accept Christ. There's no restriction on who could accept Christ. It does not matter your sin. It does not matter your past. It does not matter your concern. It does not matter your situation. It does not matter where you live, who you were, who you've been, or who you even are today. God loves you, and his son is for you. Is it becoming clear? Is it getting through? I'm hard-headed. And this, you know, I sometimes don't like that verse. I sometimes don't like that it's for everyone. There are some people I would rather not the salvation be for because I just kind of don't think they deserve it. You know, that's just me. I'm sure none of you are like that. I'm sinful and y'all aren't. But I'm telling you, sometimes I don't like it. But that does not matter. Salvation is for everyone. Every person in this pew, every person in this town, the Fala of Spain, the Aymara of Argentina, the Anu of Japan, the Willis, uh, Willisians of Willis and Futuna, and the British of the British Virgin Islands, as well as everybody else. Some 3,800 groups that have never heard the name of Jesus, salvation is for them. Salvation is for everyone. So that everyone who believes... And yes, it really is that simple. 
I don't like this part either. I, I like something I have to work for. I like something I have to work on. And if you get saved, let me tell you, you're going to work. Let me, you know, let's understand that. But the salvation is not something you have to work for. It is as simple as belief. But not belief, some nebulous idea. Belief must have an object. See, you must believe in him. And in implies more than just existence. It's not just, I believe that Jesus existed. A lot of people do, and they have absolutely no faith. No saving faith at all. It's more of a, a, a belief toward or into. That's what the word kind of means. It's, it's not a concept we're real familiar with unless we're Christians and we kind of get it. But it's not something that can be explained. Your belief is more in what Jesus can do, what Jesus did, in who he is, not in his mere existence. Belief that affects a change. Not just, sure, I believe in Jesus, I'm going to heaven. Uh -uh. But something that works in your heart. You believe in him, then you will not perish, but you will have eternal life. Perish or eternal life, those are our options, folks. There's no middle. There's no waiting. There's no being punished for a while, and then you get to go to heaven. It's either you perish, and, and notice that the perish is set against eternal life. It's, it's opposite of eternal life. We're talking about eternal perishing, not you're annihilated and nothing happens anymore. You go to dirt, and that's it. But we're talking about eternal perishing, eternal punishment. Those are our options. The question then is, which one are you going to choose? That's what God did. But he doesn't stop there. John wants to make clear that we understand why God did it. So we look at verse 17. For God did not. Let's stop there for a second. John very often proves a positive point by making a negative statement. If I want to tell you that I am an LSU fan, I will tell you I'm not an Alabama fan, and you'll get it. You understand how that works? Well, that's what John's doing. He proves this a positive point by making a negative statement. Well, what did God not do? God did not send. That word send here carries with it this idea of a directive or a specific purpose. God did not send. God was not like a general sending one of his commanders to carry out orders. Remember that in 3.16, he tells us that the Son was given, not sent. So Jesus didn't come in as the Jews wanted, this conquering hero on a horse with a sword. He came in as a baby, completely blowing everybody's mind. But he was not sent to do what? God did not send his son into the world that he might judge the world. See, we need to understand, especially those like me who don't think people should, there, there are some people that just don't deserve salvation. God did not send his son with the goal and a purpose of condemnation and judgment. We're going to get to condemnation and judgment because yes, it comes, but that's not why God did it. God was not sitting up in heaven one day and you said, you know what? I'm going to show them. I'm going to send them Jesus so I can punish everybody that doesn't believe in him. Yeah, that's what I'm going to do. 
Sounds like something I'd do. But it's not something God would do. Because God's purpose, God's driving motivation was love. John 3.16. See, God is not angry or self-centered. God is love. And he had a purpose, but not condemnation and judgment. So, the first reason that God did it is not to send people to hell. Now, that doesn't quite fit. You won't wait. That, not to send people. Well, that's just the way John did it. Remember, he used a negative statement to prove a positive point. God did not do it, or God did it to not send, not to send people to hell. Then, then, then why? Oh, well, John does that too. But that the world might be saved through him. The goal was salvation of the world. Remember, world, cosmos, ruined, opposed to God, depraved, us. That's why God did it. That's what God was doing in the lives of people. So, the, uh, that's you, and you, and you, and me, the people over there, the people in town. That's everybody. That's us that God did it. So the second reason God did it? Well, to save everyone who would believe. So he didn't do it to send people to hell. He did it to save people. What God doesn't do, and this is important, because I think we sometimes forget this. And, and people who are hearing about Jesus for the first time or just have a misunderstanding of, of, of God, need to understand this. 3.18 begins, anyone who believes. You see, belief is up to you. Belief is your choice. It's, it's, it's all about what you do. Salvation isn't. Let me make clear. Salvation is done. The, the, the nail prints, the, 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 the feet, the cross, the resurrection, the, the tomb. Salvation is done for you. But you have a responsibility. Jesus says, here it is. God says, here is my gift, my son. What are you going to do with him? You've heard about him. You've been told. You make the choice. See, the first thing that God doesn't do is force you to believe in Jesus. You're not going to be saved just because. Because let me tell you, if you don't choose Jesus in this life for whatever reason you have, you would be miserable spending eternity with him in heaven. That sounds counterintuitive, but God knows that that would not, you would gnash your teeth at the fact that you were forced to be with the person you spent your entire life rejecting. So hell is your choice. He will not force you to believe. Anyone who believes in him is not judged. Your choice has immediate consequences. The day you believe, you're taken off the judge list. Okay? You're taken off of the, 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 the list where God says, these are the ones who will be judged in the last days. 
your name immediately, right now, today. You get saved here in the next 10, 15 minutes, your name is off the list for judgment. Right now and forever. See, it happens at this instant. Second thing God does not do, he doesn't forget who is saved. He never loses track of his people. They are never snatched from his hand. He does not forget that you're saved. Your life stink, he has not forgotten. You're losing everything, including your loved ones, he has not forgotten your salvation. You're so far down, you don't even know which way is up, much less seeing up. God has not forgotten your salvation. The choice was made, your name is off the judge list. Anyone who believes in him is not judged, but anyone who does not believe, unbelief is up to you. See, every time you feel that nudge, every time you feel that drawing, and you don't come to Jesus, that's your fault, not God's. See, God will not be blamed for you. You make the choice. See, the third thing that God does not do is force you to not believe in Jesus. If you have not accepted the free gift, y'all, you've rejected the free gift. There's not a middle ground. There's not a, I didn't know. Everybody in this room now knows. There's not a, well, I was waiting. You rejected. The answers are yes, no, there is no later. So the choice needs to be made now. The third thing God does not do is force you to not believe in Jesus. But anyone who does not believe, he says, is already judged. Anyone who believes in him, verse 18, is not judged. Your name is off the list immediately. But if you do not believe, you are already judged. You are already condemned. Your room is reserved in hell. Can I be any clearer? That today, if you have not asked Jesus into your heart, you got a spot in hell waiting on you right now. It is already done. That should scare us a little bit. Christians, that should make us weep for the lost. We have friends, we have family whose room is reserved in hell right now because they have not chosen. You see, unbelief is self-condemnation. God is not to blame for the people who are in hell. It's not his fault. They didn't make the choice. The word, uh, the phrase there is already judged. In the Greek, it's in perfect tense. That means that it's completed. What that means is it's guaranteed. There is no change apart from a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. You have your reservation. You put it on a credit card. It is reserved and it is permanent. It's yours and it's not going away except by the blood of Jesus. Are we getting this? 
I hope so. The fourth thing that God does not do, God does not choose condemnation for you. That is not his choice. God so loved the world that he sent his son that whoever believes. Elsewhere in the Bible, it tells us God is not willing that anyone should perish. Elsewhere in the Bible, it says, whosoever will may come. God does not want anyone. He has not chosen you for salvation and your friend for hell. God made the choice, however long ago, to send his son to give the opportunity to everyone to be saved. The question is, will you do it? He's already judged because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. Just so we're clear, John makes one more effort to explain to you, your job in this is belief. You can't earn your salvation. You can't work on your salvation. You can't get to your salvation. Your job is belief. Salvation is done. John wants to make clear. You see, what God did is he chose to love, he chose to love and send his son. Why did he do it? To not condemn. I know I splendid infinitive there. Any grammar teachers are going to fuss at me. He did it to save. But what does God not do? What God doesn't do? Well, he doesn't force belief or unbelief. He doesn't forget believers. And he doesn't condemn unbelievers. So now, it's in our laps. Now it comes down to our choice. We see what God did. We see why he did it. But we see what God doesn't do. And if salvation is there, salvation is free, God's love was given, God's Son was given, if we see that God did it because he loves us, because he loves the world, and we also see that God does not force it, belief or unbelief, God does not forget us if we're saved, but he doesn't condemn us if we choose not to, that it's on us, then we come to the choice. If today you do not choose Christ, you're choosing hell. If today you do not accept the free gift of salvation, you're accepting the self-condemnation of an eternal perishing away from God. It is that black and white. But it is that easy as belief. It's actually as easy, well, as ABC. So we see what God did. What must we do? First thing is we admit. We admit that we're a sinner. We see the cost of sin. We saw that God loved the world so much in this way that the cost was his son. His very son gave his life. That's how bad your sin is. That's how bad my sin is. In order to be saved, we have to admit that. We have to understand that I have something I've got to be saved from. It's no salvation if I'm perfectly fine. Fireman shows up at our front door 
and I'm sitting there watching TV and there's no fire, and they come busting in my door and drag me out, what have they saved me from? Tim Tebow losing? Maybe I should, you know, might have needed saving from that. But they've saved me from nothing. I really don't owe them anything. My house is burning down. Rafters have fallen on me, and I can't get up. And they come in and save me. I have been saved from something. I understand what my position was, and now what it is because of that person. That's where we are, folks. Understand our position. We are caught by the rafters of sin, and the flames of hell are burning all around us. But Christ has rushed in, but he stops and says, do you want me to save you? And at that some point, we've got to admit, I can't get out of this on my own. And then the next thing is, we believe. Believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the crucified son of God, that he was buried and resurrected to give us new life and new hope. So as the rafters are on us and the flames are burning around us and Jesus says, do you want me to save you? I'm here. It's a gift. You can do it or you can try to figure your own way out. We say, Jesus, I believe. I believe that you can save me. See, it is, it is a belief in what Jesus can do. It's not a belief in his existence like we talked about earlier. It's not the belief that, yeah, Jesus is in my house while it's burning down. That's great. Thanks. Now that I believe he's there, I'm not going to burn up when the flames catch up with me. And that's not the case. I believe that Jesus can do it. Jesus, the rafters are too big. Jesus, the, the flames are too hot. Jesus, my life is too screwed up. Jesus, I am too far gone. Jesus, there is no way you can save me from what I'm in. And Jesus says, do you believe? You don't have to put part of the fire out. You don't have to get some of the rafters pushed off of you. You don't have to clean up the house before I get here. Do you believe? And we say yes. See, today's your day. You aren't promised tomorrow. Your house may burn down today, and you're in it. Today is your day of salvation. By not choosing today, you could be choosing to perish in those flames. What are you going to do? We ask that you confess. Confess that you trust Jesus. This confession, it, saying something doesn't save you, is a heart change. But if you are unwilling to express, to confess, what you believe and who you believe in, then there's a very real question about your salvation. Do you truly believe? Do you trust if you aren't willing to, to express it? And we have multiple ways to confess. You can come down front during the invitation. You can say the sinner's prayer. The prayer doesn't save you. Walking down front doesn't save you. We want you to be baptized once you've accepted Christ. Being baptized doesn't save you. Those are confessions. Those are you saying, yes, it's real. I'm willing to do something that might make me a little uncomfortable. Because y'all, if you're going to trust Jesus, it's going to get uncomfortable. The house isn't going to burn down. 
but there will be fiery darts. It's going to get rough. God's going to call you to go overseas somewhere. God's going to make you talk to your neighbor about Jesus. God's going to make you start a church in Phoenix, Arizona. God's going to make you go on a mission trip to the valley. You're going to be uncomfortable. So he wants you to come forward. He, he wants you to confess. So let's get started on that. But don't let me scare you about the discomfort because, folks, there is no greater joy than being right in the middle of a, a whirlwind that you can't control that is completely in the hands of God. You want to be uncomfortable but enjoy it? Follow Jesus. You want to be in a mess but love every second of it? Follow Jesus. Admit that you're a sinner. Believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And confess through coming forward, through saying the sinner's prayer, through being baptized, that Jesus is who he says he is. Let's pray. Lord, I know there are hearts here today that are struggling. They are about to pull the wood off the top of the pew because they do not want to move. Lord, I pray that you would pry their fingers loose this morning, that they would accept you, whether it's a fight in their heart or a physical fight that we can actually see. Lord, move on their hearts this morning. Lord, clear up my idiocy. Lord, if my words have not rung true, if they have not been as clearly presented as they could be, Lord, speak to their hearts so they understand, if not me, Hide me and let them understand the scripture. That you so loved them. That you gave your son so that they could be saved by believing. And if they don't, they are condemned. But if they do, they are not condemned now, nor will they ever be. Lord, let us see your salvation move throughout this, this room this morning. Speak to our hearts as we sing. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So what was, must we do? What must I do? Maybe this morning you're struggling. See, we all have a decision to make. Maybe your decision this morning is to accept Christ. First time. Maybe your decision this morning is to be baptized, because you've never been scripturally baptized. Maybe your decision this morning is to be used according to his purpose and according to his desire for you in missions and ministry. Maybe your purpose this morning, your, 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 uh, your job this morning is to join First Baptist. I don't know. But as Julie begins to play, as we sing this morning, what is God going to do in your heart? Better yet, what are you going to do with what you've heard this morning? God's calling. God's working. Are you going to let him finish the job? Are you going to let him drag you out of that house that's burning down around you? Come forward. If you're struggling with coming forward, catch me afterwards. Fill out a connection card. Put on there that you want to talk to me, that you want to accept Christ. Let's get this done. And then we can talk about what it is to live in God's will. Because right now, if you're not saved, you're never going to be in God's will.